please have a seat. Do you pick up your Bible if you have one as well? We're going to read our, our passage this morning from Jonah, chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. So if you could have your Bibles open to you, we're going to look at that passage now. Two weeks ago, we saw that in the first chapter of this book, Jonah deliberately rejects God and runs in his own way. Literally, he takes a ship that was bound to the other side of the known world to where Nineveh was. Literally, that's how far away Tarshish was from Nineveh. But, the, but through the rage of a storm, through seeing the helplessness of his fellow sailors in that storm, and through God's grace to send a fish and save him from drowning, Jonah finds a new understanding of God's grace. So in spite of his rebellion... God is still calling to Jonah. Will you come back to me? And Jonah's prayer from the depths of the ocean record how he began to turn and he began to reach out to God rather than running from God. It seems like at this point, at the beginning of chapter 3, Jonah has learnt that his active disobedience was wrong, and he ought to obey God wholeheartedly. And yet, and yet, he still has a lesson to learn. Because in the second half of the book, Jonah runs away from God in a different way. He runs from God by being very good outwardly, even though he's still rebellious inwardly. In other words, his actions were in obedience, but his heart was still wanting things to go his way. How do we know that? Because even though he goes to the Ninevites to deliver God's message, Jonah doesn't want God to save these enemies of Israel from judgment. And even when we get to the, book, the end of the book, that's his attitude that never changes. 
So Jonah obeys God in this passage this morning, but because his motives has not changed, his obedience is actually motivated by getting what he wants. He hoped that if he preached destruction on the, on the Ninevites, like God wanted him to do, then it might be that God actually would bring destruction on them, like he wanted It reminds me of a a story I've probably shared with you before, but I'm going to share it again because it's far too good, and I can't tire of listening to it, so here we go again. Are you ready? It's a story Charles Spurgeon once told, and it was about a farmer and a nobleman and a king. I can see some of you, oh, not again. But there we go. Trust me. Follow me. Once upon a time, there was a king who ruled over everything in a land. One day... A farmer in the land grew an enormous carrot. And he took it to the king and said, My lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and my respect for you. The king was touched. And he discerned the man's heart. So as the man turned to go, the king said, Wait. Wait, you're clearly a good farmer. And I want to give you a a plot of land as a free gift so you can farm all of it. The farmer was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all of this, and he said, wow, if that's what you get for a carrot... What do you get if you give something better? So the next day, the nobleman came before the king, and he was leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low and said, My lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will breed. Therefore, I want to give it to you as a present, as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king saw his heart, said thank you, and simply dismissed the courtier. Now, the courtier was greatly displeased and perplexed and and confused. So the king said to him, let me explain. Do you know that farmer? He was giving me the carrot. He was giving me the carrot. He was giving me the carrot but you were giving yourself the horse. It's a thought-provoking story because on the outside, the courtier is exceptionally generous towards the king. But in his heart, he was working for himself. And Jonah is no different. Outwardly, he's obedient. But inwardly, he's working for himself. And this chapter 3 of Jonah challenges us to accept that we can look like Jonah in this way. Outwardly, we can look as though we are wholehearted servants of the living God. But inwardly, it's very often the case that our motives can be very wrong. And that brings us to our first point this morning, which is simply this, Jonah's rebellion. Jonah's rebellion. 
So God's word comes to Jonah in verse 1 of our passage. Uh, Let's read it together. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to that great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give to you. It's the same commission as God gives to Jonah in chapter 1, and it tells us two things. Firstly, Jonah, in spite of his rebellion, is loved by God, and failure in God's world is never final. That's gorgeous, isn't it? Failure in God's world is never final. But secondly, it tells us that Jonah still has much to understand about God's true grace. That's why we have the second half of the book. Because if he got it there in the belly of the fish, then we'd finish with, and the fish vomited him up, and Jonah totally got who God is and understood his grace and went away rejoicing. That's not what happens. We have this second half. God is not finished with Jonah yet. Jonah still has a journey of grace to go through. And yes, it's true that in the fish, Jonah had begun to turn to God, but it's clear that he hasn't fully turned. So having been commissioned again to take God's word to the Ninevites, we're told that Jonah obeys God. Verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. We're told that Nineveh is a large city and we're told how large it was. A three days journey kind of city usually meant that you took a day traveling into the middle of it, you took a a, a day doing your business and then it took a day going out of it. And that detail gives us an idea of the enormity of the task. God sent Jonah to preach God's words so that thousands of people would not be destroyed. But still the task is enormous. How many days would it have taken Jonah? How How many days would it have taken for one man, sorry, to tell everybody about the news? How could they possibly repent with just him and 40 days to go? That detail tells us what was going to happen is a miracle from God if all the people were to be saved from God's judgment. So Jonah travels to the heart of the city and proclaims God's word to them. And verse 4 tells us the message that he preached. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. It's interesting that Jonah's message was not all dissimilar to what he preached in 2 Kings Kings, uh, chapter 14. Now, if you weren't here a few weeks back when we looked at the overview of the book, 2 Kings 14 is a record of Jonah preaching a very similar message. Basically, he preaches to his people in Israel, listen, God's blessing is going to come upon Israel, and God's enemies are going to be defeated. The borders of Israel are going to expand, and we are going to be blessed. That's the message he preached to his own people, and it happened just as he had said. So what we're finding here is a similar message to that. God's enemies are being being preached against, and God's people are being blessed. So in many ways, he's back in the zone. He was once again the prophet sent 
by God to proclaim God's wrath that was coming upon the enemies of Israel. So it's fair to say that even though he was outwardly obeying God's commission here, his identity was still rooted in a historical message he had preached. His heart hasn't changed, and his identity is grounded in a message that proclaims disaster for the enemies of Israel and prosperity for Israel itself. Jonah hasn't wandered far from the nationalism that made him run in the very first place. Which means it's it's possible to say that Jonah was not necessarily going to Nineveh because he was obeying God. What God was calling him to do was something he believed in, preaching the destruction of God's people's enemies. And we see that because as he preaches, he doesn't seem to preach with much compassion, does he? Basically, he's saying, guys, you've got 40 days, and then you've had it. And his motives become clearer when God doesn't destroy Nineveh in the following chapter. In chapter 4, he's outraged because God doesn't do what God seems to have promised. So when you look at Jonah's purpose in going to Nineveh, when you look at the message he preaches, when you see his lack of compassion and his outrage that the Ninevites should repent, what you begin to see is a prophet who is rebelling against God's heart for these people. A prophet who still doesn't understand God's heart and compassion for the nations. He's obeying God for what he can get out of it. He's obeying God... Because as far as he's concerned, God's plans still fit in with his plans. And when it goes pear-shaped, and we'll see next week, he has a hissy fit. It's a situation that many Christians in Britain find themselves in. That place where obedience is motivated by what we can get out of the experience of church. And we often don't do that deliberately or consciously, but it's an attitude we slip into without being aware of. It comes out in phrases like, I don't see the point of church. Or my small group is not floating my boat right now. Or I'm not in that place where I can give God the time he really deserves. And those kind of phrases, those kind of thoughts betray the fact that we're doing God and church with the expectation that either God will bless us in return for the time or energy or money that we're giving to him, or that the church owes us a debt of gratitude. How often have we expected to be thanked for giving time to others in the church? And being crossed because we've not been recognized? That's an example of when we obey for reward, not simply as a gift to God. Even more subtle is our expectation in life. That life ought to be not hard for us. And when it is, we wonder what God has got against us. And we wonder why his purposes are not working our way. Do you see in how in these ways we can be like Jonah? That our obedience 
is motivated by subtle demands for God to work with us and for us and by a subtle expectation of reward or thanks or blessing in life circumstances. It's very easy to slip into obeying God for what we can get out of him, like the courtier, rather than simply out of pure love, like the farmer in the story we started with. And young people, and this is where you need to stop taking notes on your phones, and just for a second, if you could listen with your eyes, that would be good. Many of you have been coming to this church all your lives. But the question that Jonah's heart forces us to ask is this. Is Jesus your king? Is Jesus your Lord? Your master? Your absolute authority over every attitude and every corner of your heart? Do you submit to him and his lordship now? Why? Because when you go to university, our culture will scream at you to walk away from him. And there will be a tension. The tension will be this. My culture wants lordship, and my Jesus loves me. Whom will I follow? Will I take the hit? And follow Jesus? Or will I listen to our culture? Because that's what I've always done. And God has just been a tag on. Is He your Lord now so that He's not revealed as a tag on when the rubber hits the road? For those of us here this morning, who are visiting for the first time or you might not be a Christian. Well, it might be that you've always believed that you're a good person. But this passage shows us Jonah thought the same. Jonah went to Nineveh obediently preaching God's message to the Ninevites. But his heart was wrong. It might be that you believe you're a nice person who does the sort of things that you would expect God wants you to do. But that was Jonah's heart as well. And like Jonah, let's be honest, it's not your actions that God wants to change, it's your heart. Like Jonah, our hearts need more than actions to show that we love God. Just like the farmer in the story we started with, God wants us to give to him out of love and relationship, not out of duty or the hope of reward. That's the lesson Jonah had yet to understand. But the question is, will we understand it this morning? The focus of the passage moves from Jonah to the Ninevites, And that's the second point of our our, our passage this morning. It's simply this, the Ninevites' repentance. Archaeologists have discovered some interesting facts about the Assyrians who lived in Nineveh. Apparently, there were four things. 
that could move them to, to national fasting and mourning. Uh, they were this, the invasion of an enemy, uh, a solar eclipse, a, a famine, a disease, uh, a major flood or earthquake, those sorts of things. They took those things as a sign that all was not well with the gods. And interestingly, around the same time as Jonah preached to Nineveh, uh, the Assyrians had been heavily de- defeated in battle. They'd been subject to a major earthquake, and there was an eclipse around this time as well. So it's not a bad call to say that God had been preparing them for Jonah's message so that they were more attuned spiritually. In other words, God had also prepared them through circumstances, just like he'd been preparing Jonah through his circumstances and sitting him in the middle of a fish for three days. So verse 5 tells us the impact of Jonah's message, and it was almost immediate. The Ninevites believed God. They didn't set up a little council of theology to look at the rights or wrongs and, 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 and why does a good God allow evil? No, they simply just believed and, and, and put on sackcloth and ashes and turned to Jonah's God and asked him for mercy. And everybody's involved. As verse 7, even the animals had to fast. And their intention was not to control God. Verse 9 tells us they just threw themselves at his mercy. Look at verse 9. Who knows, they say. God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. They just completely throw themselves at God's mercy. And so we come to verse 10. When God saw what they did, when the king discerned their hearts. Do you see it there? When he saw how they turned from their evil ways, God had compassion on them and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. One of the purposes of this book is to look at the response of the unbelievers to God's grace. And it's, it's quite a, it's quite a, a kind of a, an ironic stroke sarcastic uh, uh, book because what you've got is the believer wandering around, rebelling against God. But when the unbelievers hear what God has to say through his lips, they're the pattern to follow. And that's what happens on the ship. The sailors cry out to God and they're saved And it's what happens in Nineveh. The pagan Ninevites cry out to God and they are spared God's judgment. And it's that sense in which what the writer, I reckon it's Jonah is writing this because he's just being honest about his rebellion. What he's saying is this, don't follow the rebellious prophet, follow the pattern of the unbelievers in this story because they get it far better than Jonah does. And there are patterns to be followed for every generation. The Ninevites realized the danger that they were in and they cried out for mercy to the living God. When you look at the accounts of Jesus' life, we find that Jesus was often encouraged by the faith of people who acted in the same way. People who realized their need for God's compassion and mercy, and they cried out to Jesus. And usually, again, ironically, usually they were non-Jews. So you get a Greek woman whose daughter was possessed by a demon. She cries out to Jesus for mercy. A Roman centurion whose servant is ill, he cries out to Jesus 
for mercy. And Jesus, whilst being so pleased and, and, and answering their requests, also has really strong words for people who seem to believe on the outside but cannot believe on the inside that he is God. So this is what he says in Matthew 12, verse 41. The men of Nineveh, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For the Ninevites repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now someone greater than Jonah is here. In other words, and and you've got to almost put yourself onto the day of judgment for this verse. On the day of judgments, on the day of judgment, the Ninevites will look at Jesus' generation and every generation that has heard the word of the Lord, heard about Jesus Christ. And they will stand up and they will look at everybody who has heard about Jesus but rejected him and they will go, guys, what were you thinking? What were you thinking? We had, we had Jonah, a rebellious prophet, a self-serving nothing of a prophet. If you, stood, if you stood too close to Jonah, you'd get the whiff of fish vomit. And yet, when he, when he preached a really, really self-serving message, we believed and turned It was a rubbish message by a rubbish prophet. But we believed and turned. What were you thinking? You had the very Son of God standing in front of you and you rejected him. What were you thinking? What were you thinking? Do you see that? Do you see Jesus' point? It's it's that sense in which, oh my word, when we look at Jesus Christ, when you hear the wonderful words of Jesus, open your minds. Open your minds because He is God the Son. He is the creator of the universe, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who reveals God to us. Will you see Him? If you're not a Christian here this morning, it might be that you've heard time and time again, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, will you believe? Do you know, I I love the Ninevites, I love the Ninevites because they had such a a sliver of faith to go on, such a a, a rubbish message, a rubbish rubbish uh, prophet, and, and, and they believed. But oh, Jesus is Lord, there it is, the great message. The greatest truth you will ever hear anywhere. Jesus is Lord. Will you believe? We're not asking for uh, you you to come to the front and declare that publicly and openly. What we're asking for is that sliver of belief. If Jesus is Lord, will you find out? Honestly, I I will have a stack of of Luke's Gospels, uh, uh, Mark's Gospels at, at, at the door. Will you believe? Will you take one of those from me and read it from cover to cover? It'll take you an hour. Will you believe that Jesus is Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, and turn to him like the Ninevites did? Because you have so much more than they they did. You have the very words of God. Will you believe? So we've seen the contrast between Jonah's actions and his heart. 
We've seen the Ninevites' repentance and showing the right response to God. And the final verse of our chapter tells us about the characteristic of God that shines brightest throughout this whole book. It's beautiful. It starts from verse 1. Go and preach to Ninevites. God's compassion for the world. It starts from chapter 3, verse 1. Go and preach to the Ninevites. It's at the very end of the book. Should I not have compassion on these people? There's the brightest characteristic in this book, the compassion of God. That's our last point this morning, God's compassion. In many ways, this is the miracle of the book, that the Ninevites are not destroyed, but that God has compassion on them and doesn't judge them. Also, wonderfully, he has compassion on Jonah Jonah, in his rebellion, in his refusal to do God's work, God's way, God has compassion on him. And in the New Testament, one of the words which appears over and over again to describe Jesus' reaction to unbelievers, to people like the Ninevites, is the word compassion. Jesus was once called to preach to a city, the city of Jerusalem, And when he came near to the city, he was filled with compassion and wept because he knew that unlike Nineveh, that city did not have repentance on its agenda. But Jesus' compassion went so far that he died for those people. He died for people like us so that those who did believe would be saved. And the same eyes that wept over the city of Jerusalem are the same eyes that look upon our world today. And the same heart that was full of compassion then, which reached out in mercy then, is the same one today which yearns for the world to know him. So will we respond? Will we repent? when we see the compassion that God has for us. It's beautiful, isn't it? It is love-filled compassion for this world. For those of us who believe, will we thank God for his compassion that he has shown us in saving us? There is our motive. If ever there's a gift of love that we can respond to in love, it's the gift of salvation that Christ has won for us. Let's serve him in love and adoration. And for all of us, will we thank him for the compassion that he shows us by using us to share the gospel with this world, even though often our hearts are full of wrong motives? Will we ask him this morning to deal with the motives of our hearts so that when we give, We give without expecting return. When we give, we give like that farmer. It may be nothing. It may be like a carrot, something that's going to fade and spoil and perish. But oh, let's give with our whole hearts, with love, just like our God gives in love too.